Hi, EVF family. This morning's scripture reading is Acts 21 through 27. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eucatus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But when Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while, until daybreak, and so departed. They took the youth away alive, and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail to Asos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when we met when he met us at Athos, we took him up on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came from the following day opposite of Chios. The next day we touched at Samos, and the next day after that we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to set sail past Ephesus so that he may not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost." Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I have lived among, from, lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none among you whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I, do, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Greetings, EBF family. My name is Tim, and I have the privilege of serving here as lead pastor. It's a delight to open up God's Word together here this morning. 
And I just want to say how much I really appreciated our last members meeting, how encouraged I was by our time together. And also with the commissioning service last week, hearing from our brother Rick Thompson, the superintendent of, the, of this district, the Great Lakes District, and also the opportunity to, to meet so many of you in person, to put faces with the names, or maybe to put dimension on the flat faces that I've seen over the last few weeks. But uh, what, a, what a great weekend it was, and uh, so grateful for that, for that blessing. We are in a series here at EBF called God's Gracious Gospel, as we have been opening up and looking at the birth of the church in Ephesus. And soon we'll be turning the corner into then the letter to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians as we look at and dive into our unity in Christ. But here in God's gracious gospel in Acts 18 through 19, we have seen not only in Paul's first visit to Ephesus, but then also in his second visit to Ephesus, how he went about identifying and training up co-laborers like, like uh, Priscilla and Aquila, and how he poured his life into those that had recently come to faith in Jesus Christ, and how he sowed seeds of the gospel faithfully in the synagogue and elsewhere. As he returned to Ephesus the second time, he, we continued to see how Paul spoke boldly, how he reasoned and persuaded, not only in the synagogue, but then also in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. He teached tirelessly there, with the result that the gospel began to cross some of those ethnic boundaries as well, as Jews and Gentiles responded to the life-giving message of hope, and how the gospel then began to transform the entire province of Asia. And we also saw how he discipled new believers to the point where many confessed and repented of their former way of life, with the result that, as Acts 19 verse 20 says, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. During our last time together, we, we dove into that riveting story of the riot in Ephesus in chapter 19 verses 21 through 41. And the bottom line of that text is that if we, like Paul, if we aim to proclaim and practice the gospel in such a way that lives are changed and culture is transformed, we must seek to persuade people over time, not just in a hit-and-run kind of way, but actually doing that relational work, persuading people over time, pointing out, bringing to light, and exposing the idols not only of the heart but of the surrounding culture and context as well, and then actually calling people to turn away from the, those idols and to turn to God in genuine repentance and faith. Those themes actually continue on to the passage we're looking at here this morning. Today we turn our attention to the end of Paul's time in Ephesus, as well as then his parting words to the elders that had been raised up there, the last words that he would share with this vibrant community of disciples, at least his last words to them in person. Would you pray with me? Our Father, thank you for uniting our hearts today to worship you in song, in prayer, in the proclamation of your timeless truth, Lord. And in this time of uncertainty heading toward the election, we thank you that you are good, you are sovereign, you are holy, Lord. You are now and always will be our King. And as we face unrest in our communities, deep concerns over issues surrounding policing and racial injustice, growing polarization in our country, even heartbreaking division across churches. We, we plead for your justice, O oh Lord. We ask for perfect peace, for increased empathy toward one another, God, mutual understanding and, and grace toward one another. Lord, may we not break fellowship with those who have differences of conviction. 
Would we run toward relationship? Would we be willing to engage just those critical conversations, God, and to live out really that ministry of reconciliation that you have given us, God? That ministry of reconciliation through your great gospel. And so, Holy Spirit, this morning, would you illumine your word? Would, we, would you help us to hear these words afresh? Would you challenge us then to move out on mission so that not only that we may be transformed by your gospel, but that others might be, in, might be transformed as well, Lord? We love you. We pray this in Christ's precious and holy name. Amen. Amen. One of my most prized possessions growing up was this boxed VHS set of the Star Wars movies. You know, the original theatrical release version of the films. And I remember in the marketing surrounding that box set of, uh, of movies, they used this voice over this deep booming voice that said, one last time. That was 1995. And they were marketing these films as if it was the final time we would ever see them released. But Anyway, you can probably think about all the other releases that have come along, not only the, the special editions with the DVDs and all that, but that phrase, one last time, has stuck with me. And this is kind of in a, in a different sense, but think about if you only had one final opportunity to address people that you know and love, if you only had one final opportunity to share parting words with people that you love and cherish deeply, what would you say in that moment? How would you challenge them? What would you say to those if you knew that, that that would be the last time you would see them this side of heaven? That's what we have here in Acts 20 as Paul shares these parting words of encouragement, of gospel hope, and exhortation with the elders of the church in Ephesus. And so as we open up God's word together this morning, we're going to explore three episodes that arise here in Acts 20, verses 1 through 27. Ashley, thank you so much for reading the text already. The, that first episode has to do with Paul's travels in Macedonia and Greece. And then episode two has to do with then his time in Troas. And episode three, where we're going to spend the bulk of our time, is really in his farewell address to these, to these elders. And so much so that we're going to divide it into two, two parts. This week, looking at part one from verses 17 through 27, that really traces Paul's personal life and example in ministry. And then next week, we're going to look at verses 28 and following. That's where he picks up these key exhortations then to the elders of the church in Ephesus. Much in the same vein as the passage we heard preached last week by our brother Rick, that passage in, in 1 Peter chapter 5. But as we go through part one today, we're going to encounter six gospel principles, six gospel principles that are displayed in Paul's life and that are included in this magnificent farewell address to the elders. And by the way, if some of, some of this sounds familiar, part of this text is actually what I got to preach at EBF during that, that whirlwind of a candidating week. And so it's great to be able to revisit some of these key themes and also to expand on them as well. But at the center of this core truth, at the center of this passage, is the core truth that we must never stop calling people to respond to God's, God's gracious gospel in repentance and faith, to turn to God in repentance, and to have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's dive in, though, beginning with the first episode, that of Paul's travels in Macedonia and Greece. That phrase, after the uproar had ceased, points back to 
that previous episode of the riot in Ephesus. And just as Paul had resolved to do in the Spirit, as chapter 19, verse 21 and 22 reminds us, Paul prepares now to journey to Jerusalem. But before he does, he sends for the community of disciples one more time in Ephesus. And the text says here he encouraged them. And then he says farewell. That ministry of encouragement is also seen in verse 2 as he encourages believers throughout that entire region, throughout the entire region of Macedonia. It is also worth noting there, there are a number, number of travel companions that Paul picks up and that go with him in his journeys. It's a great reminder to us that his was not a go-it-alone kind of approach to ministry. And what's particularly striking is that in verse 5, the narrative switches to the first person as Luke, the physician, Luke, the author of of Acts joins in with his travels. So there's kind of a key, a key switch that takes place in that moment. We'll see some of those signs even as we go along here, but it is a great reminder to us that that ministry of encouragement that Paul had is a great reminder to us as well that we should seek to encourage others, not only with our personal presence as Paul did, but also with words of grace. Words of grace. The word for encouraging is that of Parakaleo, that is the word that Rick pointed out last week too, that, that word that means to, to come alongside or to call alongside. And sometimes the most important thing that we can do in encouraging others is simply to show up, to be there in the moment, to be there perhaps in a time of great pain or great loss, to be there for others. And so who is it that needs you to be present in their lives right now? Who comes to mind? Our church needs more people who are willing to come alongside others, to identify them, identify with them, and encourage them through their personal presence. But also, not just personal presence, but also words of grace. And so, one challenge for us is I would challenge all of us to think of five people, to write down the names of five people, people that God would have us encourage this upcoming week. Five people that God would have us encourage. And then to actually do it, to actually write the note, to, to say it in person, whatever the case may be. They could be people near, they could be people far. But that is my challenge to all of us. Would we up the ante when it comes to encouraging those around us, not only in our personal presence, but also in words of grace? Let's turn to that second episode, though, that, that of Paul's travels or Paul's final visit to Troas in verses 7 through 16. It begins with that phrase, on the first day of the week, in verse 7. And that phrase is actually the earliest witness we have of Christians coming together on Sundays, the Lord's Day, as Revelation 1.10 reminds us, gathering on Sundays to worship. You know, I've had some people fall asleep on me in church before, but not, nothing to this extent. This, this young man, Eutychus, who probably kind of gets a bad rap, but actually the more you read the story, Luke goes to great lengths to kind of let him off the hook. If you notice, there's... Paul going on and on well into the night. As a preacher, you know, I, could, I just have to apologize right there. You know, sometimes those things can happen. I can just imagine, though, this community wanting to soak up every possible minute they had with Paul as he then was preparing to head to Jerusalem. But there's the lamps, the fumes, perhaps, the heaviness of the room. And it's very possible that this young man had even put in a full, day, full day's work that day. But the text, as it as it paints the story for us here, it shows him drifting to sleep and falling out of a third-story window and is presumed dead. And, you know, there are different ways of looking at this text, and some have wondered if he actually 
was, was uh, dead or not, but we have Luke, the physician, who's right there. And it's, it's a one, it's, it makes me wonder if he was uh, pronounced dead, you know, in a way, on the scene there. But in the verses that follow, though, we're given uh, just this powerful picture of how God uses Paul to raise this young man from the dead, with the result then that the community of disciples are greatly encouraged. There's that word again, greatly encouraged. They are encouraged by this miracle that takes place. They're encouraged by those life-giving words as well. They are encouraged by Paul's personal presence and his words of hope too. And in the verses that follow, we're given an even more detailed itinerary. And so as Luke has joined in with this traveling band, it's almost as though the details become more vivid as far as each place that they stopped along the way. You know, in those Indiana Jones movies, Think of those montages that take place of their travels from one place to the next, kind of from one scene to the next, and you see the, the, the trajectory on the, on the map of where the plane is headed. That's kind of what happens here in, in Acts 20 at the, end of this, um, at the end of this episode here in Troas, as we see then Paul moving forward with his ultimate aim then to be in Jerusalem by Pentecost perhaps knowing that there would be a gathering of people at that time for the feast from a vast array of backgrounds, and it would be a tremendous gospel opportunity to, inse- to intersect with all walks of life in that time. We continue, though, in thinking about this text here, this, this particular episode. We continue this ancient pattern of worship on the Lord's Day, worship on the first day of the week, in both word and sacrament. By gathering to worship on Sundays, the Lord's Day, we remember and we celebrate the victorious resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We rehearse the gospel together in hearing the word and in sacrament, or ordinance is the word that we use in our particular movement. If you look at our statement of faith, it uses that word, ordinance. And so they, not only did they hear the word proclaimed, but they broke bread together, a way of signaling, a signaling of having or celebrating the Lord's Supper It's a privilege that we will get to partake in that even here later today. But we rehearse the gospel together when we worship and engage in word and sacrament. And in these challenging times, it is vital that we continue worshiping together and find more new and creative ways to do so through online services, through gathering in small groups, through YouTube, broadening the accessibility even of our our worship services, Zoom calls, and whatever else it there, I'm sure there are other great ideas that we have and ways that we can continue to, to press into community and to worship our great God and King together. As I mentioned, one of those very, very practices is in celebrating communion, like we will here in a little bit. Here's the third episode. Paul's farewell to the Ephesian elders in verses 17 through 27. The first gospel principle that we encounter in here, his farewell address to the elders is how Paul's life authenticated the gospel he proclaimed. See that in verses 17 through 19. The elders of the church, that phrase, the elders of the church in verse 17 is the first mention of elders now being raised up in Ephesus. Not only had disciples been made and also even built up in their newfound faith, challenged in some of their practices and and confessing and repenting of former ways of life, but now there are leaders raised up from among the flock that are called elders, a term that is 
used, seems to be used in the New Testament synonymously with pastor and overseer. Elder, pastor, overseer. I love how Rick pointed that out last week. He used the acronym SEO, Shepherd, Elder, Overseer. Elders are responsible for shepherding and overseeing God's flock by watching over the flock, equipping, teaching, directing, guarding, and praying for the flock. And the fact that the word elders, plural, is used here, and church, singular, backs up what we call the plurality of elders. That is, there being a team of elders in any given church. That is part of our conviction in having a team of elders here at EBF. But here Paul continues on in the same ministry of encouragement that he has been doing in those first two episodes as we have seen. Paul appeals to their first-hand knowledge of how they saw him serving the Lord as he often begins uh, the letters that he wrote, Paul, a servant of the Lord. And he highlights four characteristics of his service and ministry in verses 18 to 19. Consistency, humility, vulnerability, and tenacity. I'd love to look at each of those here briefly. First of all, consistency. He lived the same way. I love that picture. He lived the same way the whole time he was with them. He identified with them. He he was with them and among them for three long uh, and transforming years. His ministry was not just a hit and run, nor was he just some professional speaker that could kind of come in, give his pre-rehearsed speech, and then not engage in any of the discipleship afterwards. Humility. This is one of the most important traits of a Christian leader, or any believer for that matter. Later in his farewell message, he would warn the elders, pay careful attention to yourselves. Vulnerability. He was emotionally involved with the people and personally concerned for for those that he served. He was open-hearted with them. He was vulnerable with them. And one of the ways that we see that is the three times in this passage we find references to tears or to weeping. How God broke his heart for these very people. And tenacity. He persevered in the face of opposition and continued the work despite the temptation to pack it in. Despite the temptation to pull the plug. Paul's life was on full display while he was with them. And it made the gospel that he proclaimed all that more credible. And so a question for all of us is, does your life authenticate the message you proclaim? Does your life authenticate the gospel? To authenticate means to prove or show something to be true or genuine. Think about one of your favorite songs for a moment and how it has kind of two main components, that of both the the music and the notes, the melody, as well as the lyrics that go along with that song. Maybe even think of one of the songs that we sang here earlier. Our lives are like the musical notes that accompany the lyrics of the gospel. Our lives should amplify the gospel. Our lives should make the gospel all that much more beautiful to those around us. So what do people see when they look at your life? When they look at your social media feeds? When they look at your family, your work, your academic pursuits? When they look at what you're passionate about? When they look at how you treat one another? John 13, 34 through 35 says, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Our lives should authenticate the gospel we proclaim. 
Here's the second gospel principle. Paul proclaimed the gospel fearlessly, openly, verbally, and broadly. Paul proclaimed the gospel fearlessly, verbally, openly, and broadly. Paul proclaimed the gospel fearlessly. Think about this, how he did not shrink back in the face of opposition. And he proclaimed the gospel verbally. There are several clues to that along the way, that of declaring, teaching, testifying, proclaiming. Those are just a few of the words that are used. He proclaimed the gospel openly in places like the synagogue and also in the lecture hall of Tyrannus as well as in people's very homes. This stands in stark contrast to the false teachers he would warn of later that would often uh, promote hidden or secret doctrines. And he proclaimed the, the gospel broadly among both Jews and Greeks. His message was inclusive. No one was left out. He took Christ's very commission to heart and made disciples among all people. So are we, church, are we committed to to proclaiming the gospel fearlessly, verbally, openly, and broadly. Let us proclaim the gospel fearlessly. It's a good reminder that we are to seize opportunities that may come about in gospel conversations to make the truth known rather than shrinking back in fear in those moments or wondering how people might think of us when we, when we find those openings or those, those doorways to faith. Let us proclaim the gospel Verbally, and part of what I mean by that is not just leaving it all to hoping that people see Christ somehow in us and ask questions about what we're all about. While that is good, while that is a great thing to have take place, remember, though, that the gospel, too, is, is fundamentally good news. It is good news to be shared. The gospel is inherently proclamational. But in the very same breath, as we just looked at in the previous point, our lives should let in credence or, or um, authenticate the gospel that we bear as well. Think about the parable of the soils, though, in the gospels. As Jesus tells the story, the sower sows the seed generously among the four different types of soils. And we too, sisters and brothers, we are not, we are not in the soil sampling business. And what I mean by that is, we are not to go about picking and choosing who we think, in our understanding, will respond favorably to the gospel. No. We are in the seed-spreading business. We are in the seed-spreading business. So let's spread the seed of the gospel openly and broadly across every barrier that you, that you can think of. Race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, education, geography, age, gender, and so many others. We should proclaim the gospel fearlessly, verbally, openly, and broadly. Here's the third gospel principle. Paul called everyone to respond to the gospel in repentance and faith. This is particularly highlighted in verse 21, when it says, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, in Acts 17, verse 30, Paul presents responding to the gospel as a command to be obeyed by everyone. Acts 17 verse 30 says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. What does it mean to believe God's gracious gospel? Paul answers that, in effect, repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith as the proper response to the gospel is in line with how Jesus taught as well. 
This is nothing new. Mark 1, verses 14 and 15 says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repentance and faith are deeply connected. They are closely intertwined. In fact, we might even call them two sides of the same gospel coin. Repentance and faith. Repentance means to turn from our former way of life. It involves a total change in direction, a turning away from every form of rebellion and sin. Repentance, though, also involves faith, which means to place our trust in Jesus. Faith is the positive aspect, then, of repentance. Turning results in placing our trust in Jesus Christ. I love the words that Paul uses here. He says, our, he uses that full phrase, our Lord Jesus Christ. I believe he uses that phrase very intentionally. For that affirmation, Jesus is Lord, is the fundamental affirmation that should ring on the hearts and on the lips of every believer in Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith should be our response to God's gracious saving initiative. And they are deeply interwoven. Genuine faith demands repentance. And sincere, ongoing repentance flows out of, flows from saving faith in Jesus Christ. And yes, absolutely all are saved in this way. All are saved in this way, both Jews and Gentiles. And so have you responded to the gospel in repentance and faith? The gospel is not simply some nice piece of information. It is a command to be obeyed. There is no room for sitting on the fence. We either respond in acceptance or rejection. God's gospel requires a response that has eternal significance. So have you responded to the gospel in repentance and faith? There's a great analogy that's kind of helped me understand the significance of faith here too. It comes from Evangelical Convictions pages 238 and 239. It's this whole analogy of marriage. A man, it says this, A man and a woman may be attracted to one another and may get to know the content of each other's character. They may become convinced that they would make good marriage partners. But marriage requires more than that. One's faith must be put on the line. They must make a commitment to one another, a very personal commitment. Real faith comes only when they forsake all others and say, I do. For that reason, the marriage vow is called a pledge of faith. The gospel calls us to make such a pledge of faith to Jesus Christ. Such faith unites us to Christ, and in that union, his saving work flows into our lives. Faith is not our contribution to the saving work of God. Any more than accepting a marriage proposal earns the love of the one who proposes. Faith is simply the means of receiving God's saving grace in Christ. Have you responded to the gospel in repentance of faith? Have you turned toward God in repentance and received the Lord Jesus Christ? Here's the fourth gospel principle. Paul was then ready to suffer for the sake of the gospel. That's found in verses 22 and 23 especially. Paul's life was guided and directed by the Holy Spirit as we have seen, not only was he led by the Spirit, the Spirit also compelled him to go to Jerusalem. And he also warned Paul that imprisonment and difficulty would await him. 
But this did not deter Paul. He wanted to be in Jerusalem by the day of Pentecost. And Paul also must have seen in this, too, some of the similarities with Jesus' own journey to Jerusalem, too, where he would ultimately suffer and be broken. So the ch- church question for all of us, too, is are you ready to suffer for the sake of the gospel? Church, we are not promised a pain-free Christian life. In fact, as we're reminded in 1 Timothy, all those who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. Are we willing to follow Jesus, whatever the cost, even if it's not popular? In reflecting on this passage, Ajith Fernando, who is a, a Sri Lankan author and teacher, director of Youth for Christ, he writes this. He says, this passage teaches us teaches us three things about suffering. Christians take on suffering because of their commitment to the glorious gospel of Christ, a cause that makes such suffering worthwhile. Two, people will be motivated to suffer for the gospel when they see their leaders suffer for it. And three, leaders not only suffer for the gospel, they suffer for those whom they lead. I have seen that to be the case so often. And my encouragement to us as elders, too, is to, to march into the smoke, to be willing to have those difficult conversations, and that we, too, might agonize over, especially in prayer, that we might agonize over the flock of God. We should be ready, though, all of us should be ready to suffer for the sake of the gospel. I can't tell you just how inspired I am by the resilience and example of the faith of my brothers serving in northern Iraq. My brothers that are, that, are, uh, that are from northern Iraq as well. And seeing everything that they have been up against. All of the challenges that they have endured. From knife attacks to bombing attempts to, uh, to others. In fact, even more recently here, all, everything surrounding COVID as well. But I feel like regularly I'm getting updates about another 15 believers baptized. Another 20 believers baptized. Another church being planted in Iran and elsewhere. It is such an, an encouragement to be in it to me and a reminder that I too must be ready to suffer for the sake of the gospel. However, whatever that looks like and however God calls us to, are we ready to suffer for the sake of the gospel? Here's the fifth gospel principle. Paul aimed to testify to the gospel until his last dying breath. Look at verse 24. Paul aimed to testify to the gospel until his last breath. This is closely connected with the the previous principle as well, but Paul expressed his willingness to suffer for Christ and to put his life on the line. And he uses two images here, that of running a race and also that of accomplishing a mission. His desire was to finish well, to finish by running the race that God had marked out for him and to accomplish his God-given mission, that of testifying to the gospel of the grace of God. His desire was to finish well and to testify. The word for testify here has its root really in legal proceedings. It means to bear witness to or to offer firsthand authentication of the fact. Paul had been confronted by the risen Christ on the road to Damascus and had been dramatically transformed by the gospel himself. And so he testified to that which he had a firsthand knowledge of the transforming power of the gospel, the gospel of the grace of God. I can think of no better summary for the heart of Paul's message, the very heartbeat of his entire life, the passion of his ministry than this phrase. 
the gospel of the grace of God. This is what has inspired the title for this, here, this miniseries, God's Gracious Gospel. Grace, grace, it is all about grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor that he so generously pours out. He lavishes his grace upon us, even though we don't deserve it. And even though we can't explain it, the gospel is all about the grace of God. I, you know, in thinking about this whole running a race, I used to joke around about how I did so much running in the army that the thought of running for fun just seems completely foreign, completely absurd. That's not to knock those of you that enjoy running for fun. Whoever had that first idea of paying to run is a genius, but I digress. It is something that we've enjoyed doing as a family. You know, we've got that, that double stroller we like to put the kids in. And I, I find that uh, at sea level here, I can run like a champ. But Paul uses running a race as a fitting analogy for the Christian life. But the beauty of it, though, is that Jesus Christ has already run the race. He has marked out the race for us. He has run the race before us. And now he cheers us on in that race as we press on. We're reminded of that beautiful picture in, in Hebrews chapter 12. So church, will we faithfully testify to the gospel until our last dying breath? Our goal should be to finish the race and accomplish the mission of faithfully testifying to God's gracious gospel. We too should testify to what we know and what we have experienced firsthand. How did God come to save you in the first place? Who are the people that he used in your life that intersected with you that maybe even engaged in some of that pre-conversion discipleship in your life? Who is it that poured into you though that, that, that shared the fundamentals of the faith with you and, and he helped train you up in the faith too? Your faith story is one of the most powerful tools you have to effectively communicating, communicating God's gracious gospel with others. Let us to aim to finish well and to faithfully proclaim God's gracious gospel until our last dying breath. Here's the last principle, the last gospel principle. Paul proclaimed the gospel fully and he left the results up to God. We see that especially in verses 25 through 27. Paul proclaimed the gospel fully. He did not avoid unpopular topics. He was willing to share anything that was helpful and edifying, as we see in verse 20 as well. He knew the word. He knew the people well so that he was able to preach and to speak prophetically into their lives, into the situations and the circumstances that they faced in life. And if you look especially at verse 26. It says, Therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you. That might seem like kind of a weird thing to say here, but this points back actually to the days of the prophets. There's a, pa a passage in Ezekiel that likens the role of the prophet to a watchman. A watchman warning a city of impending danger, impending attack. If the people did not heed the warning, it was ultimately on them. It was the role of the watchman to simply sound the alarm, to sound the alarm. So Paul could say with confidence that he had indeed sounded the alarm. His conscience was clear. Paul explains further that he did not hesitate to then proclaim the whole counsel of God, verse 27. He didn't preach the things that were easy or would make him more popular. He opened up all of God's word to them, the good, 
the bad, the ugly, everything in between, so that ultimately they had no excuse. They had no excuse. And so, church, may we too proclaim the gospel, proclaim God's gospel fully, and leave the results up to God. Thomas Jefferson is famously known to have taken a a razor and scissors to the Bible to cut out Jesus' miracles, his resurrection, and more. But the reality is that we can very easily fall into the same pattern. Maybe not even, maybe not physically doing that, but in our attitude towards Scripture, we can end up minimizing, ignoring, um, just circling and deleting certain passages in our mind, perhaps some of those passages that, that challenge us the most or that reveal even more deeply the idols of our heart. But we can very much do that very same thing, sometimes picking and choosing what we want to focus on in Scripture. We should, though, not spread the seed only among who we think is receptive, who we think might be receptive to the gospel, as we, have see, as we just saw in the previous section. But we also must not tamper with the seed itself. We must not tamper with the seed itself. We may face temptations to water down the gospel or to leave out parts of the gospel that might seem unpopular or controversial. But we must never tamper with the seed. We must never tamper with the gospel, the full gospel. As a church, we believe that God has called us to preach the whole counsel of God, every page of Scripture, His entire will for us. That means not shying away from difficult passages. That means not just sticking to the the feel-good stories, perhaps. And, And by preaching through books of the Bible, it means that when we encounter those difficult texts, that we deal with them that we wrestle through them together in community. May God, though, find us faithful, like the watchman in Ezekiel. May God find us faithful to sounding the alarm, to warning those of, of, impending, of impending doom, while at the same time leaving the results of that ultimately in the hands of the Holy Spirit. May God find us faithful to sounding the alarm while leaving the results up to God. So, church, may everyone everywhere respond to God's gracious gospel by turning to God in repentance and having faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And may we never stop calling people to respond to God's gracious gospel in repentance and faith while living lives that authenticate the very gospel that we proclaim. By proclaiming the gospel fearlessly, verbally, openly, and broadly, by being ready to suffer for the sake of the gospel, and even aiming to testify to God's gospel until our last dying breath. And while proclaiming the gospel fully, the whole counsel of God, and leaving the results up to him. Amen, church? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your life-giving word, for these deep challenges that you have placed before us. And Father, for the opportunity to hold up your great gospel to to turn it slowly in our minds, to examine it from various facets. And Lord, would you help us us to take these challenges to heart? God, would the movement, would the forward momentum of the gospel not end with us? Just as people were were faithful in our lives, O Lord, to share the life-giving message of hope with us, would you find us faithful to proclaiming and practicing your gospel, to to engaging that ministry of encouragement, 
to be willing to suffer and to do so till our last dying breath. God, would we entrust our very lives, would we entrust this message to you, knowing that you are doing able to do so much more than we ask or imagine, God. We love you. We thank you. We pray that your gospel would only continue to grow and increase just as it did in Ephesus. Would it grow and increase here in Evanston and beyond? And would you use us as your instruments of grace to do just that? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.